Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to Banter. We're back from our summer hiatus, and our first guest back today is Mark Thiessen, who's a senior fellow with us at AEI, where he studies and writes about American presidential leadership and foreign policy. He also co-hosts another one of our great AEI podcasts, What the Hell is Going On, with Daniel Pletka. He's a columnist for The Washington Post and and a contributor to Fox News. Um, Before his AEI days, he was a member of the White House senior staff under President Bush, serving as chief speechwriter to the president and secretary of defense Rumsfeld. Before joining the Bush administration, he spent more than six years as a spokesman and senior policy advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman Jesse Helms. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Mark. Great to be with you. It's great to have Mark here. It's also great to be back with you, Phoebe. I yes. missed you. We haven't Long done summer. Banter in a while. I know. Mm-hmm. We ba- we banked a few, so it yeah. made it seem like we were around <laughs> in August. And I was here. You pretended. I, I, you know, I heard, I heard a little, I, I got a compliment over the weekend because I was here Friday before Labor Day weekend. And of course, I was here first thing Tuesday after Labor Day weekend. And apparently the young staff at AI noticed it. Mm. They said, look, Robert, Robert's here. No one else is, but he's here. <laughs> well, I'm here on Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. So, Mark, I want to start out by talking about, you know, where, where you came from, how you came to AI and your background. You're kind of a, you know, an alumni of the Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld world. Sure. And tell us a little bit about that and your experience with the Secretary of Defense and the former vice president. Sure. Well, I was, I mean, I started out in my first real government job was working on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee with Danny Pletka, uh, working for Senator Jesse Helms. And I spent uh, six, over six years there on the committee. And one of our jobs on the committee was uh, Senator Helms always had a theory that America has never lost a war or won a treaty. And so he would always uh, take on all these arms control treaties that the Democrats wanted to implement. And he would bring the former secretaries of defense back uh, to testify. And at the time, that was Cap Weinberger, Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld, who had been uh, who had been President Ford's uh, secretary of defense, youngest secretary of defense, and then later became the oldest secretary of defense. And so he was in private sector, didn't have a policy staff, so he would turn to us to help with his testimony. And so I got to know him a little bit through that process. And then when uh, George Bush won the presidency, I got a call asking me to come to the Pentagon and help with his confirmation testimony. So I showed up in the transition office and did a little work on a first draft, never saw anything else. Uh, A few months went by, happy, happy on Capitol Hill. And all of a sudden I get a call saying the secretary wants to see you. And he came in and asked me, would you be my chief speechwriter? And so there it was. So I was so I was next thing I knew I was in the Pentagon. And within a few months of that, uh, the attacks of September 11, 2001 happened. I was in the building, felt the building shake, smelled the smoke. uh, And all of a sudden we were on a uh, on an incredible journey over the next few years uh, fighting the war on terror. I traveled with him 250,000 miles around the world to 50 countries, including his first visit into Bagram Air Base when it was still a blown out uh, Soviet uh, Soviet air base filled with there were carcasses of MIGs all over the ground. And he uh, that when we landed, they told us, please don't step off the tarmac because the whole base is a minefield. Um, and we met with the we met with the Northern Alliance forces there and and uh, plan, planned the takeover, met with the guys who ran the who, we, we flew over actually over to Uzbekistan and met with the guys who did the cavalry charge. The first, most people don't realize, the first war of the 21st century started with a cavalry charge. Yeah, I remember uh, that the, picture in the New York Times. The guys, the guys who, who, who ran down and took Mazari Sharif and then traveled with him to Iraq and all sorts of countries around the world and learned a lot there. 
And so you were with the secretary for the whole time that he was at defense. Uh, in Almost, the up, until, up until 2004. And then uh, I got a call from the White House asking they needed to staff up their speech writing shop for the, uh, for the re-election campaign. So I went over to the White House and then ended up staying there for, for five years. And looking back, I mean, you know, the Rumsfeld's history and experience and contributions are so remarkable over such a long time. What do you what is your sense? What is your what is your your statement on on his contribution to the United States? You know, it's funny when Danny and I do the podcast, I always keep coming up. I keep popping out these Rumsfeldisms out of my head. Like, you know, <laughs> and, that, and the wisdom is so profound. I mean, just he, he would have small phrases that that really captured things like he would say weakness is provocative. And I think that's just that I use that all the time. It's one of the most telling phrases. Anytime when America projects weakness in the world, what it does is it causes people, it tempts dictators to test our resolve. If they, if, and if they, and they may, and it causes people to miscalculate and make decisions they might not otherwise make. That when you project strength, uh, you, you deter people from making, uh, making miscalculations. There's so many little things that I learned from him. And that did way. you observe this remarkable partnership between the vice president and him, this friendship, this I did. buddy, buddy I did. thing? Yeah, they were, they were, they were a remarkable <laughs> pair. One of my, one of my favorite, uh, events was when, uh, when Rumsfeld received the uh, James Doolittle award and, and, uh, vice president Cheney came up and presented it to him. Uh, and they they stood up there on the stage and and did a Laurel and Hardy re- routine yeah. about their about their uh, their well, they, history with each other. Yeah. It was quite uh, they they were quite a pair. They kind of reversed positions in that Rumsfeld yes. first hired Cheney and then Cheney hired Rumsfeld, so they both worked for and and for each other at that, different points in their careers. That is, that is exactly right. Um, the you know Donald Rumsfeld little little pet, little mm-hmm. fun fact yeah. when he was at OEO. You know, mm-hmm. Both Rumsfeld and Cheney are former poverty fighters, like yes. me, and uh, they were the head of OEO, the Office of Economic Opportunity, in the Nixon administration. Sure. And at the very very beginning of the Nixon administration, Donald Rumsfeld, I think, with Dick Cheney's support, maybe Dick Cheney didn't know about it, I don't know, jumped on a plane and took the shuttle up from Washington, New York, to meet my dad at LaGuardia Airport oh, and oh, offer wow. him a job. Wow. Oh, wow. Dad went out and he had just moved to New York. So he yeah. was being offered a job to come back to Washington. Hmm. And dad said, thanks very much. You're doing great things, but I'm happy here and I'm going to stay. So they were friends yeah, that's uh, awesome. for life. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld when, when he told me from one of the stories from the Nixon years was that he, uh, President Nixon asked him to be the head of the Office of Wage and Price Controls. And he said, but Mr. President, I don't support wage and price controls. And Nixon said, that's why I want you to run it. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Well, wage and price controls are a sore subject at AEI. Oh, I'm sure. As you I'm know, sure. it was not really one of our greater moments. But I'll give you one more story about Roosevelt. Yes. One time we're, we're traveling, I can't remember where it was, somewhere on one of these, you know, thousand, thousand uh, mile journeys. And I get, and I said, this is, I get a call that the secretary wants to see you in his cabin. So I go up thinking he wants to work on a speech or something like that. And he's, and he says, and I just had I had just had uh, my first child right after 9/11. My wife was actually eight months pregnant with my first child on 9/11. So mm-hmm. for many hours she didn't know yeah. if the father of her first child, of her child was was even alive. Uh, then I had a second one soon after that, and he knew I had a young family. And instead of talking about the speech, he said, "Do you know the rule of 72?" <laughs> and and he and he began to explain. There's a, there's a ca- and I don't even remember the details of the calculation. But it's a way to calculate how long it would take you to make a million dollars. Like if you put a certain amount of how much money you'd have to put down now to to to, to, earn, to earn a million. And he was so he you know he was sitting there in his cabin with all the weight of the it world on his shoulder. Compound interest. It's a, it's compound <laughs> interest exactly. It's, very it's, a, it's like having thing. servants working for you. <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. And and he and he's you know he said he was explaining to me the the principle of compound interest and saying how and I'm sitting there thinking this guy is like running a war. 
He's responsible for security of the country, and he's sitting in his cabin on 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 the Secretary of Defense's plane, thinking Tyson's got a young family. I need to give him some advice on how to uh, on how to take care of his family and all the rest Very of it. Nice. So it's just he was a, he was just human, a wonderful person, human yeah. person. No doubt yep. about it. So now you know, as Phoebe said in the introduction, yep. you are both a contributor to Fox, yeah, and you are a columnist for the Post, yes, and uh, and I just want to know how how do you do that? So, I mean, of course, Fox has its opinion side and it has its news side. And uh, and so the opinion side is very opinionated and is very conservative. Uh, and and the news side is fair and balanced. It really is. I mean, I spend a lot of time on the air de- debating with Democrats and presenting, you know, both we, they present both sides of the uh, of the argument. So, you know, I'm, I'm regularly on Martha McCallum's show. I'm on with Brett So Payer you're on, on either one report. of these shows. You could be on both their opinion side and the, at any yes, given night exactly. you contribute it, to it, either it, one. It really depends. I'm on I'm on right. a different a different shows every day. And with The Post, The Post is very uh, is very liberal. But Fred Hyatt, who was the editor for so, so many years and who tragically passed and away rest this in year. Peace. A good uh, man. Such Fred a good Hyatt. man. But he, you know, he really felt that it was important for the Post to to present well-argued opinions that differed from its editorial position. So when he hired me, low twelve years ago, uh, as an opinion columnist, it happened I had just put out a book uh, defending the enhanced interrogation techniques that the CIA uh, had done, and I was writing op-eds promoting the book and, and making different arguments towards it. And this was in the middle of this whole argument over uh, which, which argument. went on, yeah. and the Post's editorial position was that these were this was torture, which I vigorously disagreed with. And I sent him an op-ed defending the program and so basically saying that Nancy Pelosi had been briefed on it and didn't object at the time. And I had I had sources who had told me this and all the rest of it. And it was well argued. And he wrote me back and he said, we'd love to publish it. And would you like to be a columnist? Well, <laughs> and so, I mean, he, so Fred literally hired me. No, not not despite the fact that I had defended the enhanced interrogation program, but because I had because I had defended it. And that's the culture at the Post, which is that they really want. Uh, there's fewer of us on the conservative side than the liberal side, which makes sense because it's a liberal liberal view, viewpoint. Mm-hmm. But they really want. And he would say when Trump came into office and I, I sort of took a position of I'm going to be the same person I was before Trump and after Trump. I'm going to defend him when he does the right thing and I'm going to criticize him when he does the wrong thing. But I'm open to him. I'm not a never Trumper. I'm going to pre- defend the president when he's when he's wrongly attacked. And I'm going to say when he does the right thing, but also criticize him. And he took me so he took me to lunch and he said, you know, we need more people like this. Do you have any ideas for people we could hire to present this? So that was under Fred and was Fred under, protected you. He was your he, you were his hire. Yeah. And have you Jackson had any Jackson Deal feeling? was there. I mean, Ruth Marcus, who's the deputy editor right now, well, if all feels the same way. They've just they've, we've got a new David Shipley. New, David Shipley's a new editor. And my understanding is that he's going to carry on that legacy. I mean, it's what what's important about The Washington Post as an institution is that it's one of the few places left in the country where people who disagree meet in the same place, read each other's opinions, discuss and debate. Because I think one of the big problems we're having in our culture today is that we're also stovepiped. Conservatives get their news from some sources, liberals get their news from other sources, and it's almost like we're living in two Americas where we don't even, you know, if if you're on the left and you don't even watch Fox News, you might not know that we have the worst border crisis in American history because no one else is covering it, unless you read my columns in the Post, right? And, or, or, Fred, uh, or Hugh Hewitt or, so, or, right. or, or you know, a couple other people over there. So it's really important as an institution to have that. And I think it's great that the Post is so dedicated to keeping that. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of op-ed pages over the yeah. years. I've read them all a lot. And so are, do you feel the the Post op-ed, is, the, the group of writers is pretty solid? Who, yeah, who's, your, who's the one you like the most who's on the left? Oh, I can't I can't <laughs> I can't give you a name. Uh, but I like many of my colleagues on, on the left. And, you know, and, and the other thing is also that we that. 
you know, people sometimes on the post who are left take heterodox opinions and, and, and say things that I, that I agree with. And sometimes I take an opinion that they agree with. And it's interesting to find common ground. One of the things that, uh, for example, Alyssa Rosenberg is a columnist over there and she's very pro-choice. I'm very pro-life. But she's been a long supporter of of uh, increasing support for families, right? And so this was not where she's got together. I wrote a column basically saying, you know, the pro-life movement now post Dobbs, we need to double down on our on our policies to support families. So we so it's not just a matter that we're protecting the unborn before they're born. We're also helping parents make be able to make the decision for choice and support their families and take steps to to strengthen families. And so she she and I, you know, we, we have been talking about ways that we could support each other on that. So there's, you find common ground, but you don't have that if you don't talk to each other, if you don't talk across the aisle. And that's the... One of the things I found, and this is just a sidelight, is is that real conservatives and real progressives can have these debates. But it's when you are a progressive who takes a conservative position on something, that's when the anger of the wrath comes down (laughs) or the other way. Yeah. It's almost like we're we're meaner to our own team when we take a, a divergent view. Yeah. But maybe that's just a generalization. But anyway, so now let's talk about Fox. Sure. Uh, and I also want to relate it to CNN. You said that Fox uh, regular journalism or, or news journalism is fair and balanced as ever. Yeah. And um, and I understand that. Um, uh, CNN seems to think that they need to make a shift more toward the center to be fair and balanced, and they haven't been in the past. Yes. Do you interpret what's happening at CNN as that, what I just said? It's hard to say who they I mean, they're letting go a lot of people. We just yeah. haven't seen who they're replacing them with. Um, so I, you know, I, it would be it'll be interesting to see uh, their their model clearly isn't working. Which is, I mean, they 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 went from being the the, the trusted news source where when there was an international crisis or something that you'd turn on CNN because that's where they they would be on the ground and they'd be reporting and that was what what their brand was. Right. And then MSNBC came in and sort of grabbed this whole you know left wing uh, new uh, news opinion side thing and they sort of tried to go outdo them and 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 become an opinion source uh, that was anti-Trump. And now, you know, maybe maybe their best hope is that Trump comes back because that was yeah. their, their business revenue. But the world, post-Trump world, hasn't been good to them because no one wants to, you know, one wants to hear liberal opinion people screaming about Trump all the time. Right. So, uh, you know, I think they would be wise. I, I would think they would be wise to emulate Fox. Uh, so I, then I want to follow up one more question on that. So just the, you, you described that in or, the people that accuse Fox of being partisan journalism may just be watching the wrong show. They're, they're watching Tucker or they're watching one of the opinion shows. So just, Nat, just tell us, if you want to watch Fair and Balanced News at Fox, which show should we watch? Well, first of all, I'm, I, I'm, I'm on the opinion page of The Washington Post, and they also have a news page, and yeah. I think that's great. And yes. I think you should read the opinion page, and you should read me, and you should read my liberal <laughs> yeah, colleagues yeah. and read opinion, yeah, and you should it. also read the news. I agree. Um, and so, uh, you know, so I have no problem with people. Uh, uh, I've, I've, I encourage people to w- watch the opinion shows on Fox. Okay, I didn't mean uh, As I, well. I, no, I'm not saying. But, but just but, tell me, but, which but, is but, straight but, news but, show? On the straight, I mean, the, it's hard to say because I like so many of them. I mean, special report uh, is 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 the best. It beats. It's better than ABC Evening News, CBS Evening News. All it's the best evening news show. Martha McCallum is terrific. Uh, Dana Perino and Bill Hemmer, uh, America, America's Newsroom in the Morning are great. Uh, Sandra okay. Smith and uh, and John Roberts, who's there you a, go. a great news. John, John uh, Roberts uh, has been around forever. Amer- America reports. I mean, these are the shows that I do every week. Harris Faulkner has a show called The Faulkner Focus, which is just terrific. Okay. Um, so you've got lots of great uh, content uh, you know, on the news side. And and basically the way it works is during the day it's the news side with some opinion thrown in. 
and in the evening it, it's uh, it's the opinion show, and so you got the opinion page at night, and you got the news okay. uh, news page news pages in the morning. Now I know when to tune into Fox. Yeah, <laughs> not okay. I tune into it all because I need to sure. know what all that's going on. Okay, mm-hmm. so now let's turn to public policy and get sure. out of the the journalism and your background. I appreciate that background, uh, and and your particular interest is foreign and 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 foreign affairs and national defense, Absolutely, and you yeah. you do that ex- well. And so the question is, so in the in the history of American foreign policy. The Afghanistan withdrawal under the Biden administration ranks, uh, I think you would say, among the lowest moments in our history. Is the that worst right? foreign policy debacle in my lifetime. Okay. I mean, it, 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 just stunning in its incompetence, uh, stunning in the um, the petulance of a president who would not listen to his military commanders, who told him that this would happen, who warned him that if he didn't leave 2,500 troops, which is nothing. I mean, we have more than 2,500 troops in Spain. You know, they, 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 we have, you know, there's there's 30 countries in the world where we have 2,500 troops or or, or more. Um, who wouldn't who wouldn't leave them, and all our gains would be lost, but they could be maintained with 2,500 troops. And then who repeatedly lied to the American people, said it was an extraordinary success, said there was no Al Qaeda uh, in, in Afghanistan, and then and then we found uh, that the leader of Al Qaeda, Ayman Zawahiri, a year later was hanging out in Kabul in the in the diplomatic zone where the all the Taliban elites were. That and then. The absolute shame of leaving behind American citizens and our allies uh, who had risked their lives. Afghans who had risked their lives. Who were friends of ours. Who, who, were, who not who were friends, who had risked their lives, who were you know, interpreters, who were combat, went into combat with, with yeah. our people. Uh, we left behind special, special forces guys who were trained, who were so, you know, you could ta- argue about vetting of some of these people and all the rest of it, and there's concerns about that. These people weren't, weren't just vetted. They were brought to Army Ranger training in the United States and trained as they have the same qualifications as any U.S. Army Ranger. We're, they're the most highly trained co- special operations combat forces in the world amongst them. And we just left them behind at the, at the mercy of the Taliban. And, and what's the story in Afghanistan now as a, as, a, as a staging ground or as a problem in the world or as a leader of its own people? Is, is Afghanistan just a mess right now? It's a complete mess from a humanitarian perspective, from a perspective of women's rights and all the, all the rest of that. But I think the most telling thing was the fact that we found Ayman Zawahiri, the Osama bin Laden's right-hand man, his successor, the leader of al-Qaeda, took him out in, in, in downtown Kabul. I mean, the, again, President Biden said, "We the, the people who say we should stay here, there was an argument for staying here but when, when al-Qaeda was here, but al-Qaeda's gone. He said al-Qaeda's gone. He told us that was the truth, which wasn't true, and he knew it wasn't true, or he should have known it wasn't true. And, and they, were, they were there. Uh, they were there in greater numbers a year ago when we pulled out than they were on before 9-11. And now the leader was operating out of downtown Kabul. I mean, if that doesn't tell you that there's danger on the, on the horizon, I don't know what does. And you were also critical of President Trump's uh, treatment of Afghanistan and, and negotiating a deal to yes. exit Afghanistan. And I'm not playing whataboutism because it's silly. But tell us about your view of President Trump's neo-isolationism and desire to retreat from the world and places like Afghanistan and his rhetoric about the 9-11 wars. Uh and some of the people you used to work for. How, how did you have you ever like written strongly about that? I have written strongly about that. I mean, first of all, on your own whataboutism, yeah. I'm a defender of whataboutism. <laughs> okay. And I'll tell you why. What, when people say whataboutism, what they're basically saying is, please ignore my previous hypocrisy. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think yes. you're calling out people, you know, it's 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 fascinating when somebody takes a position and it goes both ways. So, you know, killer it just go into 
on a complete uh, tangent. Hillary Clinton has classified information on her server and we need to lock her up. But Donald Trump has classified information in Mar-a-Lago and it's an outrage uh, that, that anyone's upset about it. So there's a lack there's a lack of consistency and it goes both in both directions. Yes. Yeah. To, to your specific question, I was very critical of the president when it came to uh, first. Let me let me say that I think Donald Trump, if you put the mute button on, was one of the best conservative presidents in 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 my lifetime. Yeah, I've quoted uh, his, you his, saying his, that. His Mark, li- I don't know if you've noticed that, I, but I have. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. I mean, if you if you take all the rhetoric and all the chaos and all the everything else out of it and just look at the list of policy accomplishments, I mean, the the Abraham Accords alone are worthy of a Nobel Prize. He did many many good things. I don't want to sound like I'm I'm. I, I think that his foreign policy was actually much better than I expected it would be based on his isolationist rhetoric, as you discussed during the campaign. Um, but Afghanistan was was just a horrible. Uh, mistake. Uh, the fact that he he invited the Taliban to come to Camp David, oh, um, and 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 not only the Taliban, the people who he invited were released by Barack Obama from Guantanamo Bay. Those leaders. So he would have invited people who he had been holding in Guantanamo Bay to sit around the table in Camp David, where the decision to invade Afghanistan had been made, and the PR disaster that would have been and the only way he was only saved from his own from his own mistake by the fact that they ended up killing an American right before that and he he pulled the plug on it and then in the final days of his administration he had like his his acting head of presidential personnel draft up an order to order the withdrawal of all American troops before he left office in this case what about him was justified they're both bad they were they were both bad when it came to Afghanistan now would would Trump have done what Biden did? I don't think so. If he had had a second term, I don't think that there's any way that he would have made an unconditional withdrawal and allowed them to take over Kabul. I think he would have like so the moment in in the worst moment of many worst bad moments in the withdrawal from Afghanistan was the fact that when when the Afghan government fled, uh, there was a meeting in Doha between General McKenzie and the Taliban leaders and the Taliban leaders basically asked him, do you want to secure Kabul or should we do it? And we said, no, you do it. We don't want it. We don't want it. Because he didn't have the troops to do it. He could have gone to the commander in chief, said, we need more troops. We'll secure the capital. We'll get everybody out and all the rest of it. There's no way that Donald Trump would have let, would have let the, the Taliban in to, to, to Kabul. He would have blown them up uh, before, they get, before they came anywhere near it. So now let's turn from one past disaster to one brewing disaster. Give, give us your take on what's happening with Iran. The Biden administration is desperate for a foreign policy win. And they 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 they, think they want to bring How us back into the. How is the foreign policy win to make a deal with a country that is providing arms to the Russians in the fight against Ukraine? It wasn't uh, it wasn't a win when Obama did it. It's even worse now. I think yeah, it's even worse. And you know, they're you know, it's fascinating to me that, that Joe Biden. We just we just the report just came out that the least number of oil leases of any president in in the last quarter century. Uh, so he's tamping down domestic production. James Coleman did a great tweet on this. Did mm-hmm. you see that? James Coleman is uh, one of our energy scholars. And yeah. he, he compared the, the oil leases in the various presidencies yeah. and said, here's something that would affect, you know, the price of gasoline and inflation. And President Biden's clearly not doing anything about it. So we're, so we're, we're tamping down domestic production at the same time that we're going to Saudi Arabia, like, like Jimmy Carter did in the 1970s, and asking them to increase production, going to Venezuela 
a government who we don't even recognize as legitimate and asking them, uh, trying to negotiate with them, and then go, going to Iran. So is that the purpose of the deal? Is no, to I get think more I, oil out of Iran. I think it's a, it's an added impetus. I think they just think that it's a, they 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 think that Donald Trump did enormous damage by by pulling out of it, and they want to restore it. Uh, Art, just just a technical question on that. that. There's been a lot of talk of Biden administration being close to a deal on Iran for a long time, and they never get there. Do you think they're going to get a, a deal or really put something before the country that's a deal with Iran? It's it's hard to say because it's you know they, there's only so much begging you can do, and the Iranians have to have the will to want to do it. And I don't necessarily think the Iranians want to, want a deal. If they did, they'd have it by now. Okay, now let's talk about the bleeding heart of the world, Ukraine. Where do you you've been around these very difficult foreign policy crises involving national defense and and wars and people getting killed? Yep. Do you see a, a satisfactory outcome? I mean, I hope you do. You're both basically someone who believes in that we can make progress. You take. Can we get to a, a result which is Russia out of Ukraine? Without a doubt, the Ukrainians can do it. It's just a question of what the only the only decision. The only difference is whether we provide them with the support to do it. Because the, the Biden administration has done the right thing, but they've done it kicking and screaming the entire way, and they've been dragging their feet. If they if they had given Ukraine these weapons before the invasion, which they didn't want to do because they didn't want to provoke Russia. Then when the invasion started, they only gave they, they tried to offer Zelensky a, a ride out of uh, out of uh, Kiev. And he said, I don't need I need ammunition, not a ride. Um, and and so they started giving him arms, but just light weapons and things like that. And then they started escalating and they wouldn't give him the MiGs uh, they wanted. They wouldn't give him long range uh, artillery. And then they started to do it. And over time, slowly, at the cost of thousands of Ukrainian lives, They've started to do more and more and more. They're, they're giving them now long-range artillery, but holding back certain long-range artillery because they they worry that if they give them artillery, they they can hit Russia with that. That'll be that they would that might provoke Russia, and so they're they're holding things back. We need to take the constraints off of this and give the Ukrainians the weapons they need to drive the Russians out of every inch of Ukrainian territory they have taken, including Crimea, and then we can have peace. And this is an opportunity. For U.S. foreign policy, because the Russians are just like they did in Afghanistan, they're, they've they've sunk their military into a quagmire. They're using up all their, their their military capabilities. It's making the world safer because they don't have the weapons to threaten uh, Poland. They don't have the weapons to threaten uh, the Baltic states. They don't have the weapons to uh, yeah. to do some of these other things that they would like to do. So we should bleed them dry in, in Ukraine. Give the Ukrainians everything they need to do, to do this, and and the Ukrainians want to fight. Look at the polls. Of, and there's a recent poll came out in Ukraine, and th- I think something like almost 90 percent of Ukrainians think that they're going to win, and that the result will be that all Russian troops are out of the entirety of their country. They want to do it. They have the will to do it. They've shown the courage to do it. Uh, and well, that would be a victory, victory for Ukraine and and for freedom, and it would be a victory for Europe, and it would be a victory for the Biden administration if they could. It would make it ha- help make it happen. Absolutely. That's a better um, victory than a deal with Iran. And, and on top of that, it would be a victory in the Pacific because uh, a, success, a successful prevention of, U- of Russia taking over Ukraine as a deterrent to China going after Taiwan. Um, you know, because Ukraine, if you look at a map of Ukraine, it's got a long porous border. It's really easy to put troops over the Ukrainian border. And the Russians are having an awful hard time despite that. Taiwan's an island. you got to get across the Taiwan Straits. Yeah. It's not nearly as easy militarily as, as, as Ukraine is. So if we can if we can show the resolve 
to to push back and and defeat them in Ukraine, it'll be a deterrent to China. Yeah, I, I've heard a briefing today, and it came clear to me that the best way to deter China is to win in Ukraine. Is that a fair Absol- way to put it? A hundred percent. His weakness is provocative. And uh, Phoebe, you're a, you know, these are these are your issues. These are issues you care about. Do you want to pipe in here with something? on uh, foreign affairs or defense? Sure, sure, yeah. No, so I know that, Mark, you wrote in favor of Pelosi, Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, um, even as the White House, again, was kind of reluctant and sending mixed signals about it. Um, after that, a lot of other congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle have visited. What else could the Biden administration do outside of Ukraine to strengthen its position towards Taiwan? Well, Biden Taiwan. did it and then walked it back, which yeah. is he got rid of the policy of strategic ambiguity. He, he said three different times, uh, that if China attacked Taiwan, uh, that we would defend Taiwan. And then he w- then he sheepishly walked it back and said, well, I haven't changed the policy of strategic ambiguity. Well, you did. You just, mm-hmm. now you're reversing itself, which again, weakness is provocative. Mm-hmm. If, if we need to have the, the, the Article 5 commitment to, to the NATO alliance that kept the peace in, in Europe for, you know, the entirety of the Cold War for six decades because the Soviets knew that if they crossed the Fulda Gap, they would face the entire NATO alliance and they would be at war with the United States of America and that prevented them from doing it. We need to have the same kind of guarantee uh, for, for Taiwan. China needs to know that, we, that if they do attack Taiwan, we will respond. And sim- but, but in order to do that, you, also, you have to have the capabilities in place to do that. One of the, uh, the great things that, pre- many great things that President Trump did on foreign policy was he withdrew from the INF Treaty, which was a treaty between the United States and the Soviet Union, which barred intermediate range nuclear and conventional missiles. China was not a party to that treaty. If it had been, something on the order of 80% of its missiles would have been banned under the INF Treaty. Um, and that was a European theater agreement that had outlived its usefulness. But getting rid of that, what it does is it allows us to deploy intermediate range conventional missiles in the Pacific, which we could not do before. So we should be deploying those kinds of the kinds of intermediate range weapons in in Japan, in Guam, across across uh, across our bases in Asia that would deny China the ability to get across the Taiwan Straits. If they think we can stop them from crossing the Taiwan Strait, they won't try it. So you've mentioned this weakness is provocative. And one of the you know, that that term is wasn't Donald Rumsfeld that invented the concept, but but the point I'm trying to make is is that the one way you show lack of weakness is you invest in armaments. Yeah. And I, there are AEI scholars here that say they've they've fought some tough battles with congressional uh, appropriation uh, bills, and that armament expenditures have been going up, not as far as they'd like, but there's been some accomplishments. And also, every time I wake up, pick up, and look at the newspaper, it looks like Congress has approved another billion dollars of support in armaments to Ukraine. Yeah. Am I naive or has there been some increase in our spending in defense in response to these crises around the world? And has that been good? Not nearly enough. Um, And and there have been some. In fact, this is something that Danny and I are planning to do a podcast on in the Mm -hmm. in the in the coming months. uh, So we can do a deeper dive into it. Maybe I can come back and talk to you about it once again (laughs) once, uh, once we've done our deep dive on it. But we are sending, for example, uh, we're, we're, we're sending uh, missiles to, to an ar- artillery to the Ukrainians, but we can't replace them at a fast enough pace in order to restock our stockpiles because the production lines aren't there because they haven't been there in place for a long time. So I don't think so. It's great that we're giving this stuff to the Ukrainians and we shouldn't stop doing that. But we need to be uh, upping our, our domestic production. And that's not just a matter of money. That's also a matter of getting supply chains moving and all the rest of it. Um, so we, we, we are 
uh, and we are in a in a bad situation when it comes to replenishing our stockpiles. And um, you're also a columnist, but good columnists are also reporters. They work their sources. Yep. And what are you hearing about changes in the Biden administration, foreign policy and defense policy leadership after the midterms? I have no idea. None. I, I, I've, not, I've, not, I have not worked any sources on that. Because okay. uh, so I've heard I that, that there's going to be big changes. There, there ought to be. <laughs> it's the most disastrous foreign policy national security. Is there someone in, in who's the a, a sort of a someone who would be acceptable to a Democratic president who you'd like to see them have as national security advisor or secretary of defense or secretary of state? That is really a really interesting question. Off the top of my head, I can't think of somebody now. The only the, I'll tell you one person who I uh, who. They will never. They would probably never take, but who would be uh, very good in some capacity would be Joe Manchin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Joe Manchin. I remember Joe Manchin when I was in the Bush administration. Joe Manchin came to the White House. He in in 2006 when the Iraq War was going really really badly, and even Republicans were trying to push uh, President Bush to withdraw. He went with Jeb Bush as governors to visit the National Guard troops in in Iraq. Um, and he came to the White House, did a press conference standing with President Bush, saying that he was behind him on the uh, in the war in Iraq. And he told him privately afterwards in the Oval Office, he told him that they had taken him to a predator base, and they allowed him they allowed him to write a message to the Taliban uh, to the uh, to Al Qaeda in Iraq on one of the on one of the predator drones, and he wrote, "Sending you to hell from almost heaven, West Virginia." <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, oh, you know, he's a he's a he's a uh, he's a right thinking um, person the, on foreign the, policy. What about the but, cur- uh, current CIA director? People say that he's pretty good. Uh, I've I've heard good things about him. I don't I, I don't know him very well. I will bet he. I know gets, his I know his predecessor very well. Gina Haspel was terrific. Yeah, um, yeah. But, I, uh, I I bet she gets promoted if yeah. if leaving CIA to be state or. I think I think a lot of changes need to be made in the national security team of the, of the Biden administration, starting with the commander in chief. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so now let's talk about the former commander in chief. The you wrote a piece not so long ago saying that former President Trump is going to blow the elections again in Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. Um, how do you what? How do you explain his hatred? Of uh, sort of mainstream Republicans, the major, the minority leader of the United States Senate, and um, is it helpful? No, <laughs> he is not being helpful. I mean, look here. Here's the thing: D- Donald Trump has inserted himself into a lot of races, and as a result, he owns it. He's he, he's picked handpicked a lot of the candidates in the key swing states. So, Dr. Oz is trailing John Fetterman in every poll. He's down six point five points in Georgia. Uh, Herschel Walker. He was down five points to Raphael Warner. That's closing, which is good. So, you know, that, that that's a good sign. In Ohio, J.D. Vance is up by 3.7 points. To put that in perspective, Rob Portman won that seat by 20 points. Yeah. Um, you know, at that uh, Arizona Blake Masters is down by six points. These are all winnable states. And think about the context we're in in this election, right? So you have the most unpopular president in the history of presidential polling going back to Harry Truman. Not a single president has been this unpopular at this point in their presidency as him. The worst inflation in 40 years, the worst crime wave since the 1990s, the worst border crisis in American history, the highest gas prices on record. This should be a red wave to, of, un, to, of, of un, un, unmatched proportions. Unmatched proportions. Yes, the, the historical standard since World War II, the White House, uh, the party in the White House has lost an average of 26 seats in the House and four seats in the Senate. If we can't exceed that in this environment, then Republic, there's only two possibilities. One, the American people have warmed up to Joe Biden, or they've looked at the alternative the Republicans are presenting and they say, no, thanks. So, you know, we should, this should be a, wet, or a historic red wave. And the fact that it's not 
looking like that. Now, again, maybe the polls are wrong because 2016, all the mm-hmm. polls were wrong. Yeah. Ron Johnson is running in Wisconsin um, and he is down four and a half points or something like that in the polls. In the last election in 2016, he was down by 3.6 and he won by by almost four. Yeah. So, you know, the rough numbers. So, you know, the polls haven't been exactly accurate. And a lot well, of that's you a, know, that's an interesting race. I think Senator Johnson may be in more trouble than we realize. But the Laxalt, it looked like he had it was doing great. I, I'm he may he might not win. Yeah. I mean, and again, it's all, all those are all. So now, Mark, this is interesting for you because the line, the uh, some Democrats are saying and some media advisors is that there's two factors hurting Republicans. One is Trump and the other is reversal of Roe versus Wade and abortion. Yeah. You are, I know you, you're not going to say in the wake of this election that Republicans didn't do as well because American people uh, are unhappy about the reversal of Roe v. Wade. No, I'm not going to say that. You're not going to say and, that. And, so you're and, going to put all the blame on Donald Trump. Well, I'm going to. I will, let's put it this way. So here, here's here's where Trump's impact is. One, he's chosen the candidates. Two, uh, he didn't choose the Mar-a-Lago raid, but yeah. he did choose to take classified information back to Mar-a-Lago that shouldn't have been there. Yeah. And so here we are, you know, eight weeks before the election, roughly. And instead of talking about inflation, instead of talking about crime, instead of talking about the border, instead of talking about gas prices, we're talking about Donald Trump. Yeah. And it's reminding people of Trump. You know, Trump, if he was smart, what he would do is he would go out and talk about instead of talking about the 2020 election and how the election was stolen, all of that, that, weren't things great when I was president? Gas was cheap. The economy was humming. Uh, you know, you, where businesses could find workers. Yeah. You know, things, were, things were great. And look at them now. Are you better off now than you were when I was president? That would be a winning message. Instead, what people are being reminded of is all the reasons that they voted for Joe Biden. Fascinating poll number. October, right before the 2020 election, Gallup asked to American people, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And 56 percent of Americans, the highest on record, said they were. That was in the middle of the worst pandemic in American history since the since 1918, the worst racial unrest since the 1960s, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. And majority of Americans for the first time ever said, I'm better off now than I was four years ago. And Trump still lost. So what that tells you is Americans didn't dislike his policies. They disliked him. And they disliked not even so much him. They disliked the chaos. They were exhausted by the chaos and all the rest of it. And so what does Mar-a-Lago do? It reminds you of the chaos. Yeah. It reminds you of all the stuff you you. Mm-hmm. The reasons why they why Americans voted for Joe Biden was to get rid of this stuff. The constant fighting, the fighting with the deep state, the fighting with the FBI, and a lot of it wasn't Trump's fault. The the the, the you know back then the, the the Russia collusion thing was an absolute conspiracy theory, and they spent millions of dollars. You know the same people who are telling us MAGA Republicans are threat to the country because they won't respect the election results were all saying Trump was illegitimately elected because he Vladimir Putin put him in office, and so. It wasn't necessarily Trump's fault. They, they came at him, um, but he gave back and he gave them and he constantly gave them pretext to go after him. With The day after the Mueller probe, he makes that call to Zelensky and gives them the, it, and it wasn't an impeachable offense, but it gave them the pretext to go after him with the impeachment. Now he does it again by having top secret information sitting in Mar-a-Lago. He, he, he betrays your loyalty or you're, you're trying to help him. And he, every time he, Bill Barr, <laughs> poor Bill Barr. Did you see what he said about Bill Barr? No. Oh, God. <laughs> 
you know, rhino, completely incompetent, just because Bill Barr said he shouldn't have had those documents. They're clearly not his. Bill Barr's been going after him for a few weeks, though. No, I know. And I know it's Carl Rove on yeah. Fox very explicitly said, they're not his. He shouldn't have them. But also, the, the thing that's jumped out at me at the in the affidavit was three letters, HCS, which is human intelligence, yeah. right? So he had not, not just top secret information, not just top secret code word information, but human intelligence sources. Now, he says he declassified everything. If he declassified sources and methods that exposed human sources in foreign governments around the world, that, that this would means be, we have an asset in a foreign country yes. who's telling us stuff as a spy or as yes. an undercover agent. Yes. And if they get discovered, they will be killed. Yes. You're absolutely right. That yeah. is inexcusable. It, 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 it's absolutely. Now, again, I don't, you know, I have, I think that the FBI and the Justice Department have completely discredited themselves. I think if you, I mean, if you look at the FBI, they falsified intelligence. It, 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 this, oh. uh, they falsified uh, uh, information they provided to the to the FISA court. You, they they used the Steele dossier, which was a, which is a product of the Clinton administration to get. Oh, warrants, uh, uh, we uh, had Judge Silberman yeah. at an event the other day, and, and he said that exactly that that the FBI had done a very poor job in the Russian collusion thing, and the Justice Department had behaved very badly. He said that, but he also said that's not new. The FBI and the Justice Department has made mistakes. For years, J. Edgar Hoover was was an abomination. Sure. Is what Judge Silberman said. Judge, Judge Silberman. So the is question correct. is That's always when when Judge Silberman so, speaks, so, I always say Judge Silberman exactly. is correct. <laughs> the question that that we have to have examine, and this I my own feeling about it is, is it doesn't look like the Justice Department and the agents conducting this investigation of these documents concerning the potential disclosure of human assets, yes, who are at risk of having their lives ended. Mm-hmm. Um, have behaved badly. That they, it looks to me like it, they negotiated. They talked. They gave him a subpoena. They got a lawyer to sign a document saying, "I've given you everything." It looks like they got evidence that showed, well, you didn't give us everything, and there's still some bad stuff there. And then it, they went and got it. It, it appears that way. Um, but the problem is, is that a lot of Americans won't give them the benefit of the doubt because of all the other past, stuff. past. and not just not just past. Uh, Senator Grassley just came out and said that FBI whistleblowers had come to him and and said that there was a senior FBI, the the, the agent in charge of the Washington uh, Washington office, uh, was suppressing actively suppressing the uh, the Hunter Biden investigation, and the guy actually just resigned and was actually walked out of the FBI uh, last week. Um, so it's ongoing mm-hmm. uh, corruption uh, and, and within, so, within uh, that, and its agency. So when you when yeah, the yeah. foundation of trust is gone. Yeah, and this yeah. is the biggest problem we face in our country overall is that right. the foundation of trust in our institutions has been destroyed yeah. because they, 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 you know, just, it, it's like it's like the boy who cried wolf, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when, when, when you finally get it right, no one's listening because you've done so many, you've lied so many times. Yeah. Um, and they've lied so many times that they've really destroyed their credibility. Yeah. What Although, do you make you, of yeah, the order ahead. from the judge this weekend um, pausing the investigation and appointing a special master? I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Well, you know, the, 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 so there's a distrust. Is the FBI, is the Justice Department really not going to look, uh, do it, go on a fishing expedition on January 6th uh, for, for prosecution and all the stuff that they, they took from Trump? Their, their only legitimate purpose for raiding his home was to get back classified information. They got. And well, so well, we think they got. We, now there are these, uh, these folders that were empty. Yes, exactly. Well, that's the, so that's the thing that what I'm not sure of. So they mm-hmm. say the, the affidavit says there's HCS information, intelligence, code word HCS. 
was there really, or was it just a folder? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, an empty yeah. folder. We don't know. I don't know, and I don't trust them. Uh, so, you know, I agree with Bill Barr um, in uh, in principle, but I'd have to see. I'd have to see the details. You, know, you say about trust institutions. Um, I'm sorry, but I would trust the FBI agents and the Justice Department attorneys on this case before I trust Donald Trump and the people around him. I don't trust any of them. <laughs> well, that's good. We know that. We got, the, we got them on record saying yeah. that. That's good. That's good. Okay. Also, I mean, Mar-a-Lago is hardly a private residence at this point, right? There's so it's many. It's not just that. It's that it was clear he had things he shouldn't have had. It's like Karl Rove said. They're not his. But it's a pretext. Again, he gives them. He gives them the reason to go after him. He gives them the, you know, the hook they need to, to, to do things that, yeah. they, and then they drive a truck through it and they and they beclown themselves. But uh, but he's always giving him the pretext to go after him and and. Look, the Democrats want him to be the topic of conversation, and he's. This is one area where Donald Trump and the Democrats agree that Donald Trump should be the topic of conversation. That's yeah. not good for the Republican Party. It's good for the so. Democrats. So we're coming to the end now, and so okay. and you did come to talk a lot. I noticed that you when we when we I have an interest in in your sort of prediction of the elections, but just let's pick the Senate. Will the Senate flip to Republicans? Remain the same, or be in, will Democrats' majority be enhanced by one or two seats? I have no idea. No I mean, idea. What I mean, I mean, so I mean, look, the 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 all the dynamics of the election should be a red, a red wave. Um, that we should take both. We, I, I think that we will at least take the House, and truthfully, that's all we need initially to stop Biden from spending more money because there, then that there's no more budget reconciliation bills with Democrats only. Anything he does has to get Republican buy-in, and so that's the immediate stopgap. If we don't take the Senate back. This year, we're going to take it back in 2024 because the dynamic, the, the field is so tilted to the Republicans. There is not a single Republican running in a seat that in a state that Joe Biden won. And the reason for it's a fascinating history of it. That's the class that was initially elected in 2006 when George W. Bush at the right. at the depths of the Senate, Iraq War. Single Senate Republican. Senate Republican. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so in the Senate, so the field is very tilted to Republicans. It would be if we don't take the Senate back this time around, we will almost certainly take it back in 2024. Uh, so, but we really only need one one house to stop the cauterize the bleeding. <laughs> And, but it would be good to be able to have both and build a foundation for uh, for hopefully a new Republican president yeah. not named Donald Trump. Fair enough. How's that? <laughs> Mark, thank you for doing this. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Phoebe. Thanks. Thank you, listeners. See you next time. Thank okay. you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.